When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. Hi, I'm Nate Wilcox, your host for Let It Roll, a podcast about the history of rock and roll and how changes in technology and society created the new music. I'm a longtime fan and sports writer who had the unusual opportunity to interview a hero of mine in depth about his new book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963. I'm talking about Ed Ward, who's been the official rock and roll historian for NPR's Fresh Air for 30-something years. Ed's a former editor of Rolling Stone. He's written for Crawdaddy, Cream, and many other publications. He's truly one of the deans of rock and roll journalism. The interviews in Let It Roll showcase Ed's encyclopedic knowledge of rock history and offer a detailed and hopefully fun glimpse into how some of the greatest American music was created. So we're going to take a deep dive into his book with this 10-part series, and we're just scratching the surface of the history of rock and roll. Check out our website, letitrollpodcast.com, to get the playlist we've built on YouTube and Spotify so you can hear the music we're discussing. In the first episode, we'll be talking about the time period from 1945 to 1950. You'll be hearing about the Stroll, which was the main avenue of segregated African-American city within every major American city. We'll also be hearing about the independent record labels that put the music out, the relationship of jump blues, jazz, gospel, folk, and western swing to the new music, and we'll be learning about legends like Fats Domino, Hank Williams, and Muddy Waters. We'll discuss how mass migration, World War II, labor union troubles, and new technologies impacted these major musical developments, and we'll explore the biggest-selling African-American record to come out until Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1982. With that, let's get started with Ed and our conversation. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to be talking about the post-war period, 1945 to 1950, sort of a pre-gestation period for rock and roll. I wouldn't say that. I'd say it was when the energy that became rock and roll uh, made itself more manifest. That's a pretty good way to describe a period in which the music business recovers from the utter world-changing factor of World War II. Everything that was happening in the music business in the 1930s ends hard stop with World War II. There's a musician strike for four years. You can't get vinyl. Records can't come out. The big bands can't afford to tour anymore because of gas rationing. Gas rubber, rationing. Rubber rationing, too. Yeah. Um, you couldn't get vinyl because it hadn't been invented yet. Shellac. Shellac, which was made from the secretions of the of a bug that was found in Southeast Asia, which, which is not a good place to be 
trying to do business. Yeah, so especially the import-export business. And so you had things like the big swing bands shrink down into the small, like things like the Louis Jordan and the Tim Penny Five, the jump band. Louis Jordan had existed before the war, though. He was he was kind of an outlier because he he had a small mobile uh, band and and they could fit into a station wagon with a trailer behind it, and and do the gigs that way. You know, loading the Duke Ellington Orchestra, the uh, Count Basie band, uh, required a lot more. A lot a multiple, more logistics. A multiple bus operation. And so Louis was kind of ahead of his time, and his contemporary Big Joe Turner was sort of in the same boat, and the two of them well, no, continued to thrive into the 40s and 50s. Yeah, but Joe, Joe Turner, uh, he f- is best known for performing with a piano player, but he, um, he also fronted big bands. I mean, he, he recorded, I think, some with the, with the Basie. Yeah, but, but that that whole idea of the blues shouter is, is the one that translates into the post-war period. Yeah, and both of those guys are in that category. But but you'd start the chapter out talking about the stroll. You talk about Central Avenue in Los Angeles, but there's also Bill Street in Memphis, Chicago, 125th Street in in New York. Yeah, I, I'm indebted to Preston Lauterbach for his wonderful book on the Chitlin Circuit for the um, the concept of the stroll. I mean, it's something I'd always known was there, but never had given a name to. And the fact is that just about any city in the United States with a significant black population uh, had a stroll. And stroll was where social and commercial life was done because those cities were always segregated. And so it's sort of a beneficial byproduct of the ugliness of segregation. You had all these black entrepreneurs who had this opportunity to start nightclubs, hotels, record labels, record studios. Yeah, and that mostly happened uh, in Los Angeles at first. Um, New York was much more interested in jazz and, um, you know, good thing because it was the world capital of jazz at that point. But um, Los Angeles had a more of a show business tradition where, where the whole package was going out and, you know, dining and dancing and, and listening to this, uh, this music. And this had a, a real flourishing in Los Angeles because it was a place that black people went for war jobs. The um, factories that made airplanes and, and things like that they, they needed a lot of workers. And if you had skills, uh, Roosevelt had, had desegregated the war industries. So if you were a master welder, you know, you could get a job that was as good as any white guy's and get paid like the white guy did. And so there was a lot of, of immigration from the South and there was a lot of um a lot of opportunity in Los Angeles because there was a lot of money there. They were building ships, you know, and a lot of, of black people in Louisiana and, and uh, East Texas knew how to build ships, but they were always got second-rate pay. Well, that wasn't the case. Now you could join a union, do all kinds of There's a wonderful book about this, um, a, a novel that came out in 1945 by a guy named Chester Himes. It's called If He Hollers, Let Him Go. And it's about a, a guy who actually comes to Los Angeles from the South to get a job, uh, I believe, building ships. 
uh, in San Pedro. And um, he he makes a lot of money. He buys a new car. He takes girls out to nightclubs. And that's where I first learned about the um, whole Central Avenue stroll. Uh, it was it was remarkable that uh, this this novel came out then because it was a contemporary snapshot of something that had just happened. And um, Himes is is uh, lucky that he eventually moved to France and got taken up by the French literary uh, circles. And that, that helped preserve his reputation until black exploitation films came along and they could film a lot of his stuff. Yeah, I gave him a payday. And one thing that I think is really notable, and I think you do a good job of capturing, is, is how Catholic the musical tastes were on these strolls. There wasn't swing was the thing in the 30s, but in the 40s you've got a number of trends contesting to see what's going to be the thing. You've got bebop, you've got smooth jazz from Nat King Cole, and then you've got this more hardcore style. Uh, hardcore is probably not an ideal term, but... Yeah, this, that, that is, is bluesy blues. In Los Angeles, um, th this was fed by the fact that the stroll, Central Avenue, is a long, long, <clears throat> excuse me, long street. And around 103rd Street, um, it turns into Watts, and Watts was a, a separate town for a long time, settled by black Texas um, railroad workers who had just built the Union Pacific Railroad and decided they liked California better than Texas and stayed. Uh, and, but they were, you know, they're embarrassingly country for your more sophisticated people further up central. So there were two different scenes going on, and they infected each other, I think, a bit. Um, Johnny Otis uh, was the king of Watts um, because he had uh, an entrepreneurial uh, spirit and the, and the brain of a hustler. Um, he wasn't even black. He was, he was Greek. I've actually seen his parents' grocery store in Berkeley, where he grew up. I actually, he grew up in Oakland, but his parents ran this grocery store in Berkeley. And he was John Veliotis. Uh, but somehow he got bitten by the swing bug and, and went to Los Angeles and then wound up running a nightclub down in Watts called the Barrel House. Now, further up, there these places were, as I said, the dining and dancing floor show kind of place. The Barrel House was not. It was not quite a bucket of blood, but it was funky. You know, it, it was supposed to evoke the country. A Barrel House is the house where the barrels uh, on a turpentine uh, plantation are made. And it's a big place, and that's why you had your Barrel House entertainment there. Um, but but that was just what he was evoking. He, he was trying to say, this is a place where country as you may be, you can come and, and uh, you know, be welcome. And, and so he was getting people in there like Pee Wee Creighton, who was born in Austin, uh, who had gone out west to seek his fortune, but he was a guitar player. And, and there weren't any guitar players further up central. There you had people, you know, like Roy Milton. The idea, you had a, a five-piece, very, very much in, in the spirit of uh, of the uh, timpani five, you, you had a, a drums, bass, piano, and a, a horn or two, saxophone, certainly trumpet, maybe, 
and uh, and a vocalist who could, you know, Roy Milton's band, the vocalist was Roy Milton, the drummer. Uh, and he, of course, blows all those stereotypes of singing drummers right out the door. But he also had Camille Howard on, on piano, she, who I consider to be one of the greatest artists that came off the stroll in the 40s. Um, just a magnificent piano player. She, uh, before they, they shut down for the uh, 1948 uh, musician strike where you weren't allowed to use uh, instruments. It was like really close to midnight and, and uh, they they said well we can squeeze in one more track and Camille started pounding out this boogie which was called the Extemporaneous Boogie. <laughs> Good name. And it became a huge hit because it was the last uh, legal recording of um, of instrumental music, it, it's uh, one one thing that you talk about in that period that I thought was really interesting was uh, Dizzy Gillespie's failure to get over on the stroll, bringing bebop, which was the hot thing in New York City, right to L.A. and not making it, even though the audience is full of cats like Charles Mingus and others that are later going to go east. And yeah, become... but th- those those are like the intellectuals uh, from the black high schools. They they already had had a, a, a high school band leader. I, I don't remember his name, but he was one of those strict disciplinarians. Got, guys, there was another one in Memphis. Uh, there was one in, in New Orleans. These guys who, who spent decades raising up high school bands and recognizing young people like Mingus, like Dolphy, you know, um, as as talents that were worthy of development. Um, they were in no way a mass audience. And, and for you to go from one coast to the other, you do need to get paid. And this stuff was just, you know, come on. These people were not out for intellectual enrichment uh, quite as much as, as the descendants of the Harlem Renaissance were. Um, these people were out to boogie and, and to drink and to romance the ladies. And that's, I, that's what it was about. And one thing you didn't bring up, and I wanted to run my thinking by, but I've been to Birdland, and it's a small club. Yeah. And the clubs, I've been to old clubs in L.A., and they're enormous. Right. Exactly. Um, because if you didn't like what was at Birdland, you could just go down the street. I mean, 52nd Street, you know, the Onyx Club and all, all those places they were small, but you, there was an economic model whereby a jazz band playing relatively sophisticated music could attract enough of an audience so that everybody made money. But in in Los Angeles, you couldn't do that because it was it was it was workers who who were you know paying the bills, and so you need to get a bunch of them in there and, and um, give them room to dance. No. I mean, people were dancing to bebop. Max Roach told me that. He said, well, if people were dancing, I don't know what they were doing. I sat there looking out on the audience all night, sitting down, and uh, it sure looked like dancing to me. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that's a really pivotal point because bebop, you know, takes jazz into more of an intellectual art music direction, and that creates this opening for less harmonically sophisticated music to become the African-American pop music of its day and supersede jazz in that role. Right, and, and in New York, that became vocal music and it was instrumental music on the West Coast. Up in Chicago, it was electrifying 
um, music from the Delta because those people were really homesick. You you li- grow up in Mississippi and spend a winter in Chicago, you are going to be homesick, I guarantee. <laughs> yes, and you talk, uh, uh, you know, you, you make a conscious effort in the book to avoid the sort of great man theory of music, but certain performers have such a gravitational pull in this chapter, Muddy Waters kind of takes that role. Muddy Waters and Hank Williams are the two sort of big forces. Uh, and Muddy Waters is the classic immigrate from the Mississippi Delta to Chicago. Right. He wasn't doing anything different from the recordings that John Wer- John Workin and Alan Lomax made on him um, as folk music on an acoustic thing. He, he just got an electric guitar and plugged it in. Because, well, for the same reason that Ernest Tubb had done this in the 30s, he was playing places where it was so loud that if you didn't, you know, jump over the audience in terms of volume, you were going to get ignored. And if you were ignored, nobody was going to come to the club. Yeah. And one thing, though, that's interesting, like listening to a sampler of R&B hits from this period, is just how Catholic it is, not just the different kinds of jazz and jump blues and smooth pop like Nat King Cole, but you also had things like Arthur Big Boy Crudup playing straight up acoustic blues and having hit singles. Right. Well, he was, yeah, I guess he was in Chicago, um, as, as was Lowell Fulson. Uh, at that point, um, and uh, yeah, they, they were they were having those kind of hits because there were these homesick immigrants who were not so homesick that they were going to give up. Because once again, economic opportunity in Chicago was fairly large. Um, it wasn't uh, on the skilled level of, of the work that was available in Los Angeles. It was more slaughterhouse and uh, assembly line stuff. But, um, yeah, these people, they were making enough money, they wanted entertainment, and they could go out and get entertained. And Muddy was right there with the old sound and the old songs that he was updating, and he became, you know, a sex symbol, a a band leader. He he was a master uh, band leader. He, He got groups together that... You know, and if they weren't cutting it, if you, if you were cutting it in Muddy's band, you were gone because he could go and raid somebody else's band. That's what happened when Little Walter left his band. Is he the next day he had J- James Cotton there? Okay, Walter, you do what you want. Bye. Yeah, it's almost a James Brown sort of figure. Muddy, yeah. Muddy is yeah such a gravitational pull well, for musicians. He was very very charismatic. Yeah, in person, he he just had this aura. And and one thing you talked a little bit about, but I wanted to go into a little more, is this Muddy Waters is one of the only performers to both be a folk performer and a pop performer in that he's documented by Alan Lomax and John Work in the early 40s in Mississippi. They come to him, find him, have the portable recording equipment. And this is all very much, you know, Lomax is a Texan, but this is sort of an East Coast intellectual thing for, for white guys to go around. Well, work, work was black yeah, and work he was, was from black. Memphis. Yeah, and working, but but the overall phenomena of documenting folk music is a self-conscious intellectual exercise. Right, right. Well, it was it was preserving the the heritage and, you know, a good thing. I mean, work also documented um, string band music, black string band music from the 1880s, these old, old men. And um, it sounds remarkably like bluegrass. Huh. Uh, it's very interesting. And, and so Muddy is one of these people, 
one of the only ones, to my knowledge, that was both documented for the Library of Congress and then comes up to Chicago and has actual hit records. Yeah, I can't think of anybody else who, who meets that job description. He was really lucky. He, he came to a place where nobody was as good as he was. There was a previous blues scene, um, much of which was documented by Bluebird Records. Um, that, that's the scene that uh, Crudup was in. It was um, he, but he was older, and, and he didn't have that many hit hit records. Younger guys like Lowell Folsom were the ones who uh, yeah. who took over his slot in the ecosystem. Um, but the, those guys, the Bluebird guys, were getting old at that point, and their audience was getting old. And, and yet there were a lot of young people. And here comes this guy, you know, from from Mississippi, and bang, he's a star. Well, you you talk a little bit about the the growing pains to get there. They originally tried to record him in more of that bluebird setting before he puts his band together. Right. Well, I mean that that was he he was recording for anybody you know who wanted him because uh, he was a young hustling guitar player, and uh, it was he was in somebody else's band when he got called for his first session, and he even he even um, did a uh, a session that was produced by. Uh, J. Mayo Williams, the guy who had given Paramount Records its its black roster back in the day, and he, Mayo Williams was much older at that point, and, and he was recording some singer with a, a sort of Dixieland background, clarinets and things like that, and you know Muddy's just chunking away in the background. It could have been anybody. Yeah, yeah, and so it's interesting to read about that. Search for Muddy Waters' recording musical identity and Electric Blues' musical identity. But I want to go back to Los Angeles and talk about Private Cecil Grant and his his record, I Wonder. And you talk about the way it ends up on multiple record labels at the same time. Litigation ensues. Talk about that. Like It wasn't easy to make a record in 1945 for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is, to this day, nobody knows where they got the vinyl. Or the, the the shellac to press him on. That that I mean, there must have been you know a black market of some sort, and and these pressing plants managed to get a hold of some, and then of course the uh, supplies reopened, but they were coming from war damaged areas. There couldn't have been a lot of it, um, and uh, yeah, he he had this song. He he recorded it. The guy was pressing them up one by one. He had one press. In his uh, in his so-called record company, and, and he was spending you know twenty-hour days in the in the uh, office pressing up one record after another, and then somebody who was a little better connected um, came along, and Gant walked in and and uh, said, "I got a song," and the guy goes, "Oh yeah, cool, I'll." Uh, I'll record that, and who knows where he got his plastic too. I mean, yeah, and so you had the bronze versus gilt Ed, bronze records versus gilt edge records, and gilt edge recorded second, but won the legal fight. Yeah, well, that's because the, the I was he was white. Yeah, yeah, that uh, always <laughs> helps. <laughs> and the white dominated. The society. more you, the more you litigate, the the larger possibility that your judge is going to be white. Actually, there was a 100% chance in those days. Yes, yes. And so that was a big help. And, and you mentioned, I, I wanted to say, you, you mentioned Nat King Cole and uh, talking about segregation. He actually 
headed to Hollywood. He was the first one to break the race barrier and and in a but what he went into a jazz club and presented himself as jazz whereas he came out of a blues tradition and uh, his his leaving the band gave Charles Brown the chance to be the vocalist in the band and they changed the name of the band and eventually Charles went off on his own. Yeah, and that's uh, Johnny Moore was the band leader. Yeah. That, that, and they did Drifting Blues and then Merry Christmas Baby, which Mer- you talk about. Is- which I, I, I have yet to see this actually proven, but people used to tell me that Merry Christmas Baby, up until Michael Jackson came along, was the best-selling record by a black artist in the in ever um, because it was a perennial. People would buy it at Christmas because they knew it and they would wear out copies and, and buy new ones. Yeah. And poor Mr. Brown never saw a nickel out of that until Bonnie Raitt uh, led a campaign that uh, the Rhythm and Blues Foundation got him his royalties. That's awesome. And that's good to know. And, and one thing that I think is interesting about our historical moment, 2017, with the proliferation of streaming and music on the internet is I think you can hear this music the way it was heard at the time much more so than you could in previous decades. When I first started investigating rock history in the 80s, if you wanted to hear Charles Brown, you had to track down an anthology of his stuff, and then it would be 20 songs of slow blues. Right. And you're kind of like, well, this is great for 18 minutes, or, you know, 15 minutes, but 45 minutes of this gets old. But when you hear it on a nice sampler uh, and a nice shuffle mix... It really has a lot of punch and a lot of impact, and then you segue right into a nice piano boogie afterwards. Right, exactly. You know, or or a novelty like Hucklebuck, you know, which was the the second major hit record off the stroll in in Los Angeles. That that was definitely not a Watts oriented song. That that was, uh, a, I guess there was a dance that went to it. I've I've never seen it done, um, but. Uh, you know, it was it was actually it was such a hit that Charlie Parker stole it um, and turned it into a bebop tune. Yeah, well, that's essentially all of Charlie Parker's songwriting is taking some song, shifting the harmonies around. And right, except this, he didn't shift anything. He just stole it. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. He just knew he could do something with it and did it. Yeah, and so uh, a contemporary of Brown's is, is Lig- Joe Liggins with the Honey Dripper. Yeah, which is a huge song. Yeah, yeah, the Honey Dripper. Uh, that actually, sorry, sorry, that was the second big hit. That and and uh, that I don't don't think there was an associated dance. It was just there's that uh, thing where I'm sure everybody on the floor was like making a noise, you know, much much as they do on the Cotton Eye Joe. Yeah. Um, in Texas, you know, it was just it was a a great way to get out on the dance floor, and and they would do it sometimes for half an hour. Because they just people just love dancing to it. It isn't fast. It isn't slow. It's a nice medium tempo thing. You can get out there and spend a lot of time dancing. Sort of the live music precursor to the twelve inch singles of the seventies and eighties. Right, 80s, exactly. Know? Extend the groove. Let the let the crowd dictate what they want to hear and what they want to dance to. And this is a good point, I think, to segue into some of the entrepreneurs who play a big story. The Bahari brothers are a pair of Hungarian Jews in L.A. Uh, they they put out. Piano Boogies by Hatter Brooks. Right. Which, you know, if they find this classically trained or, you know. Yeah, she, she was demonstrating pianos in a music store. 
Yeah, and find her, and they're like, can you play Boogie Woogie? And it turns out she could play the hell out of some Boogie Woogie. Yeah, but I think I think she had to learn that. You know, it wouldn't surprise me to see Joe Bahari and her in a club listening to, uh, you know, uh, Roy Milton's band. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a classic case of bringing in a ringer. Yeah. You know, and, 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 uh, and, it, and it shows you the kind of role these entrepreneurs play. They're, they're not just exploiters as they're sometimes portrayed. I mean, they're oh. an active contributing part of they, making they, music. They were, they were cheating the artists out of royalties, but they didn't know they were doing that because this was how the music business had always been done. You know, ASCAP and BMI didn't really care about these artists because they were minority interest. You know, that they would be much more interested in, you know, what's going on with Bing Crosby. Well, sure, that's where the big money in the mainstream right, audience exactly. Was. But, you know, trying try to get, you know, Hannah Brooks, her $19 check. Yeah. You know, why bother? Bigger fish to fry. And then an analog to the Bahari brothers, but in Chicago, is the Chess Brothers. They weren't originally the Chess Brothers. Right. I, I used to know how to teach, apparently, approximately, um, C-Y-S-Z. A name without a vowel. <laughs> yeah, and, and so... Uh, it, As so many Polish names are. Yeah, and so it made Chess was a great name for them uh, in America to do business on. Well, you know, that, that, was, that was their father's uh, name, and I'm sure they were the Chess Brothers when they were running the liquor store, and then the Club Macombo that they opened, um, because they wanted, um, they wanted to have people, you know, black people, be able to pronounce their name. Yeah, it's it's smart business. And you talk about eventually they come together with Muddy Waters and both achieve greatness together. Right. Well, they they needed the 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 way they started was as I said they had a liquor store which I guess their dad uh, had originally started uh, in the ghetto, a, a classic uh, American story, and um, then there was a club next door called the Club Mocambo, and the the boys hung out there because they were supplying liquor to the club. And, and um, they heard all these guys, you know, these performers there, and, and they would talk to them and they said, you know, are, are you making any records? Can we buy some of your records? And they, no, no, nobody is making records of this stuff up here. So they, they, they got into business with a woman um, who had a label called Aristocrat, and, and they did a bunch of Aristocrat Records. In fact, Muddy Waters was on Aristocrat yeah, before right. the Chess Brothers bought her out, and um, they decided that Aristocrat was somewhat tainted by the fact that they'd never really had a hit. So they um, they put out, out Chess records, and the rest is history. Yeah, and and one peer of theirs you talk or a contemporary you talk about, although. It's more of a preview of coming attractions in terms of your book. You bring up Sam Phillips and that he's building a studio in Memphis around this time. Right. And it takes him quite a while to go from to segue from being a studio operator to a record label. Well, and and that's because he he's seeing Ike Turner, his talent scout, bringing guys in like BB King, who then gets signed to Modern in Los Angeles and starts making big hits and then Howlin' Wolf who records for him and then they he goes up to chess 
you know, and he's going, wait a minute, why am I fattening frogs for snakes here? You know, this is just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and one of the snakes out there is Sid Nathan and King Records in Cincinnati, who's not, a snake is probably... Uh, well, no, a snake uh, is, is, a... is a good word for him, although maybe it's more like a toad. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But he, he wasn't taking anything from Memphis. He was he no, was working locally. He had locally. his own scene, the King yeah, City. Yeah, yeah. Because there there were there was a a radio station across the river uh, in Kentucky that had a lot of watts, and and uh, initially uh, it was broadcasting hillbilly music. Uh, there was some sort of Grand Ole Opry like show there, and um, once again, Sid was thinking, why are these people? not making records. That's season opportunity and seizes it. Right. And, and he, I think said Nathan, has a huge role as a cross-pollinator because he recorded hillbilly artists and he recorded R&B artists and he frequently owned publishing and liked to encourage his artists to record songs by other artists, which had the accidental byproduct of getting country artists to record boogie tunes, getting R&B artists to write, record country tunes. Right, so you get Wynonie Harris um Recording Bloodshot Eyes, which was by, ooh, I forget the guy's name, harmonica player, Something Wayne else. Rainey. Yeah, Wayne Rainey. A and you have the unfortunate uh, example of the Stanley Brothers recording Finger Pop in Time by Hank Ballard, which is, you can just hear their discomfort. <laughs> yeah, that one didn't work out as well, but the Delmore Brothers took to it like ducks to water. Oh, yeah. Well, the Delmore Brothers were, you know, basically country boogie uh, along the same lines as... as um, Bob Wills. Um, well, I they were they were the they were the Kentucky Cincinnati variant on that, or yeah. Nashville actually. They much were, smaller combo, but they had a whole life in the '30s on the Grand Ole Opry and yeah. doing much more traditional country. Then they come up after World War II and they're doing these country boogie tunes for Sydney. Right, Nathan. and a lot of that is uh, due to Merle Travis, who was the uh, guitar player, and, and, and right, and and with Wayne Rainey. Um, the four of them made up the Browns Ferry Four, which was a gospel group, which is pretty wonderful, because they 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 weren't playing boogie exactly, but they weren't not playing boogie either. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> sacred boogie, and and, and and just great stuff. And and I think Merle Travis is something that maybe you could have gone into a little bit more because he was more than just a guitar player for the Delmore Brothers. He was also a songwriter, and was somebody that a lot of people at the time thought would lead country into a more sophisticated direction. Like in the 30s, you had Western Swing and Bob Wills that, in a lot of ways, these guys were listening to a lot of Count Basie. Well, yeah. And, and were very contemporary with jazz. And a lot of people assumed that that would be the logical evolution of country music, go into a more sophisticated jazzy direction. But not in Nashville, because Nashville no. is a very, very conservative town. Country music was looked down on. The The major industry in Nashville at that time was publishing, and not just publishing, Bible publishing. 80% of the Bibles produced in the world were printed wow. in Nashville. Wow, that is big money. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, the, so you know, a bunch of hillbillies caterwauling on records was not really of much interest to anybody. And um, so it took Capitol Records in Los Angeles, um, one of whose founders was a, was a country uh, music songwriter, to um, 
see what Merle Travis was good for. And they got him out there and got him work, you know, in the movies. Yeah, he said From Here to Eternity. Yeah. Featured singer. Yeah. I mean, Frank Sinatra doesn't get a featured song in, right. the, in, the, in that movie. Uh, and, and, and he also writes hits for their big country star, Tennessee Ernie Ford. Right. But he doesn't end up leading country in a new direction because somebody else comes along who takes it in a very... Hank Williams comes along and it's three chords all the way out. Right, and you but, can't accuse him of any instrumental virtuosity or anything. It was the, it was the words and, and, I guess, the melodies... Because they were simple and singable and rememberable. Yeah, I mean, the guy was just a fountain of great three-chord songs that became enormous pop hits. Right, because they the lyrics were so good that it was easy to put a, a standard pop singer up against it. Plus, you know, he was white. There, there was no ethnic baggage that came along with the with the songs. They were and. and you got to say that Acuff Rose Publishing was uh, very good at playing the publishing game. You know, Rosemary Clooney needs a needs a tune for her next session. You know, call Acuff Rose. Yeah. Don't, no, don't just necessarily look at Tin Pan Alley. Yeah, and and this is one thing you don't get into. But there's a guy in New York, Mitch Miller who's changing the whole way pop music publishing was working and pop music recording was working. Right, head of A&R for Columbia Records. Yeah, and, and Frank Sinatra's nemesis. You right. Know, and the bane of this, you know, the generation of songwriters that wrote what's sometimes called the Great American Songbook, and you have all these, uh, you know, the Gershwins and Cole Porter and these very sophisticated tunes that we now think of as jazz standards and art songs, but at the time were Broadway hits and right. pop hits. yeah. And Mitch Miller just dispenses with this stuff and brings in the Tennessee Waltz and Cold Cold Heart and uh, Wagon Train and all kinds of Sure, things. because he, he thought that less sophisticated white pop music could sell bigger numbers, and he was right. Yeah, he was, he was dead right. And, and, and uh, it has this byproduct, for the purposes of our story, of making Hank Williams one of the biggest songwriters of that era. Right. Because yeah, once again, uh, it was it was Acuff Rose and and Mitch Miller. <clears throat> he also hated rhythm and blues, and he hated rock and roll. Yeah, and so Columbia stayed very very out of the uh, changing times for years. Yeah, and Mitch Miller is a guy that history has been perhaps fairly cruel to. Uh, you know, he's blamed for things like how much is that doggy in the window, and 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 his era is painted as one of inane pop pablum that then sets the stage for rock and roll as a contrast. Right. There, there was better stuff being done at the time, but not through him. Yeah, and not, but not bigger, though. And he totally right. dominated. Well, he, he was right. And, you know, nobody ever went broke. <laughs> Underestimating the taste of the American public. But on a very different turn, you've got people like Art Roop out there with specialty records on the West Coast who not only does records by guys like Roy Milton and the Liggins Brothers, but he's also a big gospel. That was He was growing up in Pittsburgh. Art Rubenstein was into gospel music. And I have no idea how that occurred. And he, he learned the rudiments of the record business. And I don't know how that happened. He, you know, he's still alive. I would love to get out there 
and uh, talked yeah. to his daughter about getting an interview with him. He's like 96 or something. Wow. And apparently still sharp as a tag. That is awesome. And um, so what he did was he said, well, I want to get into the gospel record business, not knowing that that was a one-way ticket to the poorhouse. He says, but none of them seem to be from around here. Um, but if I went to Los Angeles, there's a lot more black people than there are in Pittsburgh with a lot more money. And so probably there are bigger churches and so there'd be bigger programs. Yeah, and, and one thing, another thing you don't go into, but gospel had an advantage during the period of the musician union strike of you can record a vocal gospel group maybe with a guitar and not violate the union strike. If you had a guitar, you were violating the, the strike. But you could do it a cappella. A cappella had a large tradition in gospel going back to the clankalanka style in Memphis in the 20s. Um, so yeah, you, you could do that. But what was really hot was having a guitar player, an organ player, a piano player. That organ piano uh, playing off of each other is really, really important um, to things that were to come. Yeah. And, you know, of course, a drummer. And, and you know, the idea of drums in church, that, that the conservative black church hated that, but the holiness people who were into getting people into the aisles and screaming and yelling, they loved it. So they did a limited amount of that in church, but the big deal was the sacred show business of bringing these people through. And you can hear, it's very, very rare to hear a, a, an actual live performance of this, but that 1954 um, Shrine Auditorium uh, album that he did, you know, it, it's got the soul stirs on there for like 20 minutes of exactly why Sam Cooke became a pop idol. He, he was just, you know, you can hear these women freaking out. Yeah. You know, but you can also hear Dorothy Love Coates at the, at the peak of her powers and, and, and a number of those people um, really doing the thing. And then once, once he was out, uh, once Art Roop was out in, in Los Angeles, he started seeing that, you know, once again, Central Avenue had talent seven days a week, whereas the churches only had it one day a week. Yeah, yeah, and he, he learned... Whereas butter goes, bread was buttered, and we've talked about things he would do later on with little Richard, and, and almost got Sam Cooke, let Sam's pop career slip through his fingers, but made a huge contribution. One thing I want to say about gospel is, as a musical influence in this period, it's sort of like a slow creeper. It's not a huge influence on jump blues, but but then Ray Charles brings it into into R and B, and then it becomes the foundation of soul. And then again becomes the foundation of rock music, you know, Paul McCartney, Let It Be, and Elton John's whole career, basically. And the, and the piano-organ combo is a big part of Bob Dylan's rock. Right, I was going to say, the band is, is, the, band, is yeah. the transmogrification of, of that instrumental setup. Yeah, and so, so gospel is something we'll definitely be keeping our eyes on throughout this period. And you, and you do need to keep your eyes on it because there's so little of it available anymore. I'm really concerned that a lot of this stuff is going to disappear. There's a bootleg label called Pew Burners, um, which is dedicated to making bootlegs of Chess and OK and those other labels, singles. It's run by a guy who I won't name, who has a huge collection of this stuff. And I hope he has a long life because 
I don't think anybody wants to deal with it now. I mean, Christianity has gotten such a bad rap, and deservedly so in some cases, um, that, that people don't... I, I was talking to a guy in Germany who, who was a big, big American roots music thing. He wouldn't even listen to gospel because he he associated with Jerry Falwell. I said, no, 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 you got to understand. It's a completely different theology. And... It, just would huh. not listen. That's unfortunate. but And it's also very important, your, your point about some of the least popular stuff slipping through the cracks. We think of ourselves as living in this era of the celestial jukebox and everything is available, everything's streaming. That is not the case. No. And the corporations that are grabbing more and more control of this stuff, I'd say, you know, you can argue that movies are less available than they were 10 years ago on DVD via streaming. And it's the same thing with music, especially with stuff that's not big money makers. Right. And, and companies like Google and Spotify frequently will put in, they might have a version of the song by the artist, but it's often recorded 20 or 10 years later under completely different circumstances and not the real thing you're looking for. I finally found a Shirley Caesar's Greatest Hits um box set it was like four cds and i grabbed it i got it home and it was all her stuff re-recorded with a mass choir which was a a fad in gospel music in its declining years um you know once the edwin Hawkins singers had had their bit but shirley caesar's great moment is in an album from the 60s uh where she's live and it is also a real live recording there's a, a classic from her um, former group, the Caravans, called Choose Ye This Day Who Ye Will Serve. A and she does about 10 minutes, a 15-minute version of this, talking about how she was, uh, a guy came from New York to try to tempt her to sing the rock and roll. And she refused <laughs> to do it. She finally... She builds up as she always does in in her live show. She she does these little playlets, and um, at the end of the thing, she says, "I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come to New York and I'll record your rock and roll if I can rock for Jesus and roll for the Lord." And the audience just erupts. It's like hair raising. And who turned me onto this? Lester Bangs. Uh that's awesome, Lester. Most commonly associated with punk rock and yeah, metal machine music and stuff like that. But right. that's it's it's the power is undeniable. But and one artist that was a gospel artist that did move units was Mahalia Jackson, who has a big hit with Apollo Records. Yeah, well, well yeah, but she higher. left Apollo because Bess Berman, who was co-owner of the label with her husband, um, decided that it was necessary to try to move her into pop because she was selling so well. And everybody who signed to Apollo had a clause in their contract that said that if management decides that it's a good idea for you to record pop, you should give it a shot. And she was just horrified. She sung blues in New Orleans uh, before she got saved and she was undoubtedly a very good blues singer. Yeah. Um, but Mahalia lucked out in that whoever, I guess it must have been John Hammond, uh, or maybe it was a vacant at Columbia Records, had been paying attention to her. And when she and Bess had their falling out, they grabbed her and marketed her to the jazz um, division of, of the label uh, right about the same time that they were grabbing Miles Davis. 
and she played the Newport Jazz Festival. She really didn't do the program so much anymore after that. She she was a jazz artist. She she toured internationally and, and things like that. High but class venues. I I would also say that her very best recordings were still the ones on Apollo. Yeah, that's often the case. But Mahalia goes on to have a career. I mean. That was one of like nine records my parents had, along with the new Christy Minstrels and now they're, you know, <laughs> uh, Henry Mancini and stuff like that. And, and there's Mahalia. And, and she, to me, is the, you know, if Hank Williams defines country music, she defines gospel in this era. Yeah, in, in the, at that particular point in history, yes. Yeah. And so, but I want to, let's talk a little bit more about some more record companies. You talk about Imperial. And they cover another ethnic base, which, you know, Don Tosti and the Pachuco Boogie. And then... Yeah, Lou Chud um, got into business uh, to um, record uh, Chicano um, pop music in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, and it's worth noting that even at this point, the, um, there are three Latin markets, which is one reason Latin music hasn't been more popular in the United States, you have a Puerto Rico, uh, Cuban influence in New York. You have the uh, border music, Tejano music in Texas. And then you have this Pachuco urban hipster kind of music coming out of Los Angeles. And the three don't like each other. No, they don't mingle a lot. But Marijuana Boogie, man, that's that holds a lot of power today. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as as do... A lot of the, you know, the Pachuco Boogie hits, um, they they were instrumentally, at least, you know, really hot. Uh, and the lyrics, when they're in English, English are, you know, I can tell they're pretty good. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it just, they weren't selling enough records to make it really worthwhile. And, and so when Chud woke up to the idea that there was music being made in New Orleans, he dipped his toe in the water and got bit by a big fish, you know, Fats Domino. Yeah, you talk about he meets Dave Bartholomew, who was Fats' band leader, right. and, and cuts the first records on Fats, which goes through the rest of the century, basically. Right, exactly. He's still alive. And, and, and he and Dave stayed together for 50 years, and just they're still working together still to this yeah, day Dave I Bartholomew mean, is still alive once again he's 91 or 92 because he's older than Fats he yeah. had a career uh before Fats and, and he recorded a bunch of stuff for Lou Chud you know who who drank my beer when I was in the rear and and uh, the signifying monkey a classic classic and and frequently their band would be fronted by other singers like Lloyd Price and other people that we'll talk Right. about as this history goes on. But, yeah, I mean, Dave Bartholomew and Fats Domino are another depth charge that's going to continue to detonate for the next 15 right. years. Right, and he he was really, I mean, Fats is, is the kind of inoffensive, uh, he doesn't look like he's going to, you know, cuddle up to your sister. No. He, I, he's a teddy bear. Yeah. You know, he, he's just this grinning little guy. You know, and and he he's fat, and he's he that's his first record, the Fat Man, you know, which is a, a rewrite of Junkers Blues by uh, Champion Jack Dupree, which is they call me a junkie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clean it up just a tiny bit. And another guy that's just making his first appearance that you talk about is Ray Charles, who begins as a piano player in the Northwest Coast. Right, uh, in a country band. 
um, I can't remember how he got up there, but uh, he began to tour. Well, he had this country band, and then somehow he joined Lowell Folsom's band and wound up down in Los Angeles, where he got to record for that guy Lauderdale. I can't remember his first name, who... Um, had uh, Jack, swing, Lauderdale. Jack Lauderdale, who was just a crook from the top to the bottom, um, and he had Swing Time Records, and uh, so here, here was Ray Charles, and what Ray did was he sang like Charles Brown, because Charles Brown was shifting units, and and Lauderdale wasn't going to tell him not to do it. Yeah, but. There already was a Charles Brown. This is the thing that these less creative guys don't understand, that there already is a Charles Brown. You know, there already is a Muddy Waters. Don't look for a carbon copy. It's just the public is smarter than that. Yeah, and for somebody with like Ray Charles, who is so gifted that he can do anything, sometimes it's very hard for an artist like that to figure out what is it that I... Well, he, what he is was really, really young, and I don't think he knew what he could do until Ahmet Erdogan unlocked his talent. And it, He was but, probably playing a gospel tune somewhere, and Ahmet went, Whoa, the way you're singing, that is not what you do. On the records, you must do this. But even Ahmed took a few years to get to yeah. that kind of stuff. It's stuff like the mess around first that's great, but not the kind of I've got a woman stuff that... Well, it's not the pure gospel, you know. Yeah. I Got a Savior, you know, wasn't what Ray... Because Ray knew he'd get busted by the gospel. He had to be big enough so that if he got busted, he goes, so what? Yeah. How many units are you shifting? <laughs> but we do... I wanted to talk about Ahmed Erdogan and Atlantic Records in this context there. Once again, we were talking about entrepreneurs and, and he's coming from a really weird place. He's rich. He's really, really rich. And so is his brother, Nessie, you know, and, and they have the jazz record collection of the gods. They're, you know, they're rich Turks. And dad is a, um, the ambassador, to the, the ambassador US. to the United States from Turkey. And Turkey was a, an ally and there was a lot of money involved. And so the sons move up to New York because they want to be closer to the jazz that they've been hearing occasionally in D.C. And they're in paradise. So they decide they're going to do a jazz label. And so they start recording, you know, jazz, whatever anybody else hadn't picked up, which wasn't much at this point. Um, and there they are, you know, in the record business without a clue. Yeah. At one point, I, I found a, an article in Billboard right around the time they started where they said they were going to record the complete plays of Shakespeare on 78. <laughs> I can't imagine how much, you know, try bringing that to your literature class. It must weigh about 700 pounds. Yeah, they would have had to sell five or six record collections the size of the one they sold to finance the record right. label. To, to... And even then they, they blew through that because they were living at a fancy hotel. And then all of a sudden they realized that if they didn't spend so much money, they might actually make some money. But they had to get another investor in there. They got their dentist. Ah, a dentist. Who was a, a Turkish guy. <laughs> it helps to have those connections. And so one last thing before we wrap up, but you talk about uh, Hank Williams throughout the chapter, and you end on the note, uh, you bring up Ernest Hub at the end of the chapter. And like you said, he had been doing honky tonk since the 30s. Right. And I would almost argue that he, his lyrics 
And I would actually, you make a case that Hank Williams breaks with the country music tradition by writing lyrics that are more hard-boiled, say. They're, they're more personal. They, they aren't about, you know, my sweetheart is, is wonderful. You know, I, I long for the old log cabin with mother and, and the family Bible. Yeah. Um, they're like, I am in love. I got hurt. I want to do that. There, it's what he learned from the blues. That that saying, what's happening to you, universalizes it. You know. Well, I'm in love. Well, I got hurt. Dang, this guy's onto something. Yeah, but I could argue that Jimmy Rogers did a lot of the same things. You no, know, he's no, in the jailhouse now. And... No, that's somebody else. That's well, not me. I'm he, not in the jailhouse. Thelma made a wreck out of me. Yeah, yeah. but that's just. Jimmy Rogers is, is definitely in the sentimentality. Well, he doesn't have the silver-haired daddy of mine and everything, but there's there's none of current. There's also Gene Autry. <laughs> well, Jimmy Rogers did silver-haired daddy of mine. Did too. he? Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Autry uh, Autry began as a Jimmy Rogers impersonator, so. Yeah, yeah, the definitely. But the it was Ernest Tubb that got but the But you also had people like Riley Puckett doing things like ragged but right. You know, I'm a drunk and a gambler, thief yeah, and a gambler. I get drunk every but that's night. But that's that's a fictional character, and and it's very obvious that it's a fictional character. Yeah, Riley being blind was not actually out there brawling. and No, he wouldn't know where to throw the punches. <laughs> but no, I mean, H Hank Williams learned that the personal approach is something that everybody can identify with. Even if to say, oh, poor you. Jeez, that never happened to me. But boy, you really got screwed. Yeah. You know? And so it was. that was why people felt they could talk to him. And he was also writing the songs himself, which is very important. Jimmy Rogers was not writing most of his songs. He was either stealing them from blues singers or stealing them from fans. Look, Jimmy, I wrote you some lyrics. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and A.P. Carter was sort of in the same A. boat. A.P. Carter was either stealing stuff. I mean, Wildwood Flower is a, um, a song... A lot of that stuff's pop songs from the late 1800s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that filtered through the Appalachians and is drifting around as right. folk songs. They yeah, and, and so AP music. is smart enough to copyright them. They also had that Black Driver. Yep. Um, when they became, you know, famous, and he would go and he would go to churches, and he would go to black um, musical gatherings in the South, and he would memorize these tunes and bring them back and AP would uh, write lyrics to them, different lyrics. Yeah. And and Maybell's uh, guitar style was also taken from the black church. Yeah. And and uh, and Sarah Carter's song's singing style was influenced too yeah. by that. But Hank can't do that. The folk tunes have already been picked over. Right. And, and I don't even know if he was sophisticated enough to do that. I mean, he was... You know, just this Orpheus. Of country although although music. His, his first hit was was a cover 20s. from the twenties. Yeah. yeah, Emmett Miller, which is a whole different thing. We could do a whole episode on the blackface and minstrel show tradition right. that that has had a stealth influence on pop music. I mean, if you look at the number of performers that covered Emmett Miller songs through the fifties, sixties, and seventies, it's pretty considerable. But none of them talk about how this is an old blackface song. And, right. You know, uh, but but that's that's a topic for a different time. But Right at the end of the chapter, you tease the dawn of a big song for Winoni Harris that Roy Brown wrote, Good Rockin' Tonight, which, again, 
I want to argue that these jump blues guys are a big, are more direct influence on the first generation of rock and rollers than Muddy Waters is. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no question about it. Yeah, because the, they were, um, well, they were first, and also they were national because they were already on the Chitlin circuit. Muddy Waters was not on the Chitlin circuit. His music was not popular with more sophisticated black listeners, and he was pretty much obligated to um, stay in Chicago and cultivate his audience there with occasional forays into the Deep South. Yeah. Um, he, you know, Memphis, I'm sure he was a star attraction in Memphis, although he wasn't nearly as sophisticated as B.B. King was at that point. Yeah, and Bobby Blue Bland and others that come right. along the, in the, the, the Bill Streeters. Yeah, group. and and you got John Lee Hooker in Detroit doing a very similar thing. Right, and making incredible records that were popular, but wasn't a big touring attraction. Right, exactly. The, these were these were people who were keeping in touch with the country aspect of the black experience because they knew that there were always people getting on the the yellow dog and riding north. Yeah, but I do want to get back. We'll talk next next time more about Good Rockin' Tonight, but uh, Roy Brown writes it, pitches it to Winoni Harris, gets nowhere, records it himself. It's a small hit, and at that point, Winoni and his team jump on it and have a big <laughs> hit. But Roy Brown doesn't go away and becomes a consistent hit. Yeah, record. yeah. Uh, he, he recorded a lot of really great stuff that uh, is well worth looking into. Yeah, and some people like Elijah Wald will argue that these – that basically rock and roll is fully set as a form in the early 50s by these black performers that sometimes you want to call jump blues, but, you know, Roy Brown and Ononi Harris and others. And then a couple years later, Elvis comes along, right. whitens it up, popularizes it. I don't know if he whitened it up so much as he couldn't. He, he was too respectful of the musicians to want to blackface them. Yeah, there's an element, we talked about this in the 1957 episode, of just this uninhibited but tongue-in-cheek play about Elvis and what he was doing. And, and Sam Phillips really had to bring that out of him. Right. It wasn't something that he was comfortable putting forward and, and always kind of thought it was a lark. Yeah. 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 But we'll talk about that next time, and this has been really fun. So that's our first episode, in which we covered the time period from 1945 to 1950. I hope you enjoyed hearing about how World War II and new technologies set the scene for the evolution of rock and roll. Thanks for listening to us share some of our favorite music and stories from 1945 to 1950, and come back next time for episode two, when we'll cover the early 1950s, and we'll take a deep dive into the jump blues and R&B that inspired Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and so many others. Be sure and check out our website, LetItRollPodcast.com, where you can access the Spotify and YouTube playlist we've curated so you can listen to the music we've been discussing. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.